Well, hello, church. Good morning. Yeah. Man, it's good to be in here with you this morning, this cold morning. Uh, as the seasons are changing, winter's setting in. Hopefully you like the cold because we've got a f- few more weeks of it coming. Uh, but it is good to be with you. My name is Matt Dinsky. I serve here as one of the pastors at Fellowship Greenville over in the student ministry uh, team, the best team in the entire world, uh, with some of the most amazing students in the entire world. Um, if, I, if I have to wait on it, it doesn't count, guys. We planned this. We talked about this. <laughs> Do it again. With some of the best students in the entire world. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Very genuine. Um, if it's your first time here or first time in a while, I'd like to welcome you. Thanks so much for worshiping with us at Fellowship Greenville. Uh, and if, if you don't know how we do it on Sunday mornings, we uh, have such a value for God's word. We want to know God's word, be transformed by God's word. And so one of the ways we approach God's word is every single week we, we go through books of the Bible at a time, verse by verse, inviting the spirit to transform our hearts through um, his word as we have in-depth studies. And if you haven't been here, let me tell you, we've been going through the book of James in the New Testament. It's really a letter. But James is the half-brother of Jesus grew up in the same house as Jesus, grew up in the same family as Jesus, as Jesus' half-brother. And interestingly, did not grow up believing that Jesus was who he said he was. In fact, there are multiple references in the New Testament where Jesus' siblings thought he was crazy for some of the statements he made. And they would try to remove him from some of his teaching times. And James was in that camp. He did not believe Jesus was who he said he was, but later in life came to believe that Jesus really is the Messiah, really is the Christ, the chosen one of God. Uh, Jesus's resurrection was kind of like the trump card. Uh, oh, you're, you're back. I guess you are God. All right, I will believe. And so James believed post-resurrection and became a teacher and a leader in the early Christian church and is writing this letter to those who profess Jesus as Lord, those who claim faith in Jesus for salvation. And so James's letter is being written to the early church and there's massive persecution happening. There's widespread persecution happening specifically in Jerusalem. And so Christians are fleeing the city. They're running for their lives. And so James, kind of this spiritual father, is writing to his brothers and sisters and writing in such a way um, that he's very to the point. He, he's, you know, kind of cut and dry, but he's writing in a way that's saying, listen, if you proclaim faith in Jesus, this is what the practices of that faith would be, even in the midst of persecution. And so James's writing style is direct and to the point. You've picked that up over the past few weeks, but in case you didn't know, now you do. Before we get into the book of James, I actually want to start with a movie, a classic 1988. Some of you were not alive then, but 1988 classic, a movie called Big, starring Tom Hanks. You might have seen it on TBS, rerunning itself a couple of times. Anyone ever seen this movie? Uh Uh-huh, famous scene of the giant piano being played in that toy store. Uh, The movie is pretty interesting, but this is a scene from that movie. In the movie Big, there's this young man, this teenage boy named Josh. Josh has a variety of problems, uh, and all of those problems revolve around his size. He's too short. So he can't ride the roller coasters he wants. He doesn't get the girl that he wants. He gets bullied. He gets picked on. In Josh's mind, all of his problems would be solved if he were just a little bit bigger. 
He's kind of evaluating based on his own perspective, and he's saying, man, if I could just solve this one problem, all these problems would be taken care of. And one night, Josh goes to this carnival, this fair type thing. And if you've seen the movie, you remember this scene? He's like walking down this row, and there's like carnival games and food and lights and music and laughter and all these things, but right on the edge of the light, like the, the, the fair with its warm and inviting fun light, right on the edge of that light in the darkness is this machine, and it's called Zoltar. And Josh walks up to this creepy-looking mannequin machine thing, and apparently this machine will grant you one wish if you put in 25 cents. It's a pretty good deal. So Josh puts in a quarter, and he wishes to be big. And he goes home thinking, oh, that'll never work. He wakes up the next morning, and I apologize if, like, this is a spoiler, but the movie came out in 1988, so honestly, I feel like that's on you more than it is on me, but he, he wakes up the next morning and he's big. Tom Hanks plays this role, he's big. He, he's still an adolescent teenage boy, but he's in an adult man's body and now his life has a whole new variety of problems as he's trying to figure out how to actually live while people think he's an adult, but he's still a boy. His mom doesn't know what's going on, he has to run away, and so the whole movie begins this kind of comical uh, variety of problems that he has to solve now. He tries to go back and find the machine, but when he goes back, it's not there, and so he kind of realizes he's stuck with these problems. What he thought would solve all of his problems has now introduced him to a whole new set of problems. And as I was thinking about this movie, I kind of began to think like how often we tend to operate in this same way. We, with our limited perspective, kind of look at the problems right in front of us and we identify a few and we're like, man, these would all be fixed if I could just fill in the blank or if I just had fill in the blank. But as you know, if you've ever experienced this, if you ever actually get that thing you were wanting, usually a whole new set of problems arise. And so what I have here on this table uh, is, is, this is fantasy, this is hypothetical, but what I'm gonna ask you to do is engage in a mental exercise with me. Help me make this a little bit real. Even just posture your, your brain a millimeter towards this. But if I were to tell you that, that this is actually a magical box, it's not Zoltar, that creepy looking thing, it's not Zoltar, but this is a magical box. And if you were to come up to me after the service and you were to ask me for one thing, I could reach into my magical box and I could grant your wish. What would you wish for? If this were true and if this were real and I could give you just one thing based on the evaluation of your problems in life, what would you wish for? What would you ask me to reach in here and pull out for you? Now, there's some obvious answers like money. Like, dude, I just want to be wealthy. I want financial stability. I don't ever want to have to worry about money. I want, I want to buy what I want, when I want, where I want, how I want. I want to live comfortably. Like, that's an obvious answer. Some of us would go down the money route, right? Some of us might go down the fame route. Dude, I want to be, like, famous. I want to be an influencer. I want to be known. I want to be a celebrity. I love the limelight. That would be awesome if overnight I could become famous. Maybe some might ask for love. I'm lonely. I just want companionship. I want intimacy. I tried e-harmony. It didn't work. I just want, I want romance. Those are some conventional answers. What about some of the more unconventional answers? 
Some of you may have bypassed all of those things because we've had enough celebrities point back to fame and reveal to us how troublesome fame actually is. So maybe some of us would be like, I don't want fame. I know the problems that come with it. I know there's a handful of things I don't even know about it. We've had enough people become wealthy who have pointed to wealth and say, it is more trouble than it's worth. It actually does not buy happiness. And you might be saying, yeah, I know, I know wealth doesn't buy happiness, but money buys boats and boats make me happy, right? <laughs> Logan Hopper, holla, I see you in the back. But enough people who have had a lot of money have pointed to money and said, it's not worth it. It actually caused more problems. Think about people who win the lottery and overnight become millionaires. And story after story after story after story of those people actually beginning to become depressed and anxious and burdened and their family is deteriorating and aunts and uncles and cousins come out of everywhere to ask for a little bit and now they're just torn and, and now the, they have all this attention on them and it's a burden. And so, so maybe some of you would have said, no, I don't want those things because enough people have said they don't work. So maybe some more unconventional answers might be, I want my past erased. I'm, I'm so tired of living in guilt and shame. There's nothing I can do about what I've done in the past, and yet it catches up to me every day. Some of you might have looked at the relationships in your life and been like, no, no, no matter how much the money I have or how famous I have, uh, would be or how much power I, I might have, the relationships in my life are in disarray. I just want harmony in my relationships. I, I want stability in my marriage. I, I wanna be a father that my kids are proud of. I wanna I want be a mom that, that my kids know. Like Some of you might have thought about relationships and just said, I want harmony. I'm so tired of conflict and divisiveness in my relationships. Holidays are right around the corner. Some of you know you're dreading right now going to some of those places and homes because your families are marked by conflict. Some of you might have said peace. I just want my soul to be at peace. I find myself consistently anxious. I turn on the news and I'm burdened. I, I, I hear about things happening. I'm just always troubled by what's going on. I don't know how to rest my soul. The Hebrew idea of shalom. I just want peace. Matt, could you reach into your box and pull out peace for me? Believe it or not, there's a story in the Bible that, that this exchange actually happens one time between God and a man named Solomon. It's very rare because we don't often see God operate this way. Ask anything you want and I'll give it to you. That, that's so rare. God doesn't do that. And yet in this one story, he does. First Kings chapter three, verses one through 15, God comes to King Solomon and says, ask for anything and I will give it to you. Solomon contemplates this for a little while and Solomon gives an answer. And the answer might surprise you because it might not be the flashiest answer or the most appealing answer. But Solomon says, I desire wisdom. First Kings chapter three, I desire wisdom. I desire the ability to discern good from bad so that I can lead your people. And God is so pleased with Solomon's answer that he 
grants the wish. He gives him this supernatural dose of wisdom, this divine wisdom. God reaches in the box and says, it's yours. And the Old Testament is, is what we call meditation literature. The Old Testament will repeatedly put themes in front of us so that we can consistently meditate on these repeating themes. First Kings chapter three, here's a man saying, I desire wisdom, the ability to discern good from bad, and I want to receive it from you. Does this sound similar? And it may not at first glance, but does it sound similar to anything in the Old Testament? Meditation literature, putting this theme in front of us. What the author has in mind here is actually the beginning of the scriptures in the book of Genesis when God plants a tree in the Garden of Eden and the tree is called the knowledge of good and bad or the knowledge of good and evil. And God instructs Adam and Eve, do not reach out for yourselves and take from this tree. In other words, trust me that I have designed and defined what good and evil is in this world and that's the best system possible. It will give you the best life possible if you trust me. Of course, we know the story, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve reached out desiring autonomy and individuality, reached out desiring to define good and evil on their own, desiring to understand it on their own, and joined the spiritual rebellion that was happening. Solomon is postured before God with an entirely different prayer. I don't desire to reach out for myself and presume I know what good and evil is. I don't. God, would you give me the understanding to discern good from bad? Your wisdom is what I want. I won't reach out and take it for myself. And God is delighted in the request to trust God's definition of good and bad. And he grants Solomon wisdom. Wisdom. At first glance, it might seem like, wow, what a waste. He could have had anything. And he went for wisdom. Like, bro, just live a little bit longer and you'll have wisdom. Don't use a wish for that. But what if I were to tell you that wisdom isn't just your life experience applied and wisdom isn't just some intellectual collection of knowledge over time, that wisdom is actually something divine and that some of those other things that you might've wished for, harmony in your relationships, wisdom can bring that. Peace in your soul, wisdom can bring that. not living with burdensome shame for the rest of your life. Wisdom can bring that. In fact, according to the scriptures, wisdom can lead us into discovering our purpose of why we were created to be here on this earth, live in God's ways, submit to them, and experience the best life possible. Regardless of if you're wealthy or poor, regardless of if you have power or none, wisdom the scriptures say, is this thing, this infrastructure, this way of operating that actually leads us and guides us into God's ways of living. In fact, what we're about to read in James, a, a simple summary is wise people understand God's ways and submit their lives to them. That's what a wise person does. 
Let's take a look, quick look at the book of Proverbs. Here's two examples of how Proverbs talks about wisdom. Now, wisdom is being personified. It's being given a personality a little bit, but here's how Proverbs talks about it. Chapter eight, verses 10 and 11. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is better than jewels and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. Wisdom is better than treasure. Wisdom is better than gold. It's better than silver. It's better than jewels. The scriptures highlight wisdom to something above material wealth. At the end of the chapter, let's take a look at this. Same chapter, Proverbs 8. Whoever finds me, that's talking about wisdom, finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Question on the table is, do you love death? Do you want to befriend death? Do you want to cuddle up with death? If the answer is no, then the scriptures would say, then seek wisdom. It is a treasure. In fact, wisdom is, is talked about as if it existed from the very creation of the world. If you read all of chapter eight of Proverbs and other places all over the scripture, wisdom is given character and personality. It's personified to be an entity that existed through creation in creation, and it is available for us to discover and actually enables us to live in accordance with God's ways, enabling the best life possible. Do you love death? No, then seek wisdom. Wisdom is the treasure. In fact, the summary of how the Old Testament portrays wisdom, it, it would be something like this. Make wisdom your want. If it really were an option to come before God and say, I just want one thing, the scriptures would say, make it wisdom. Ask for wisdom. Crave it. Desire it. Make wisdom your want. Why? Because it's more precious than jewels or gold or silver. It enables life and it is the opposite of death. Make wisdom your want. You want peace in your soul? Make wisdom your want. You want harmony in your relationships? Make wisdom your want. You want to understand your purpose in this life? Make wisdom your want. Wisdom is elevated. Wisdom is treasured. Wisdom is lifted up in the scriptures as the thing to desire. If you've been here over the past few weeks, we've been navigating James. Jim Thompson taught last week on James 3, 1 through 12, about teachers and, and, and how we use our words and the power of the tongue to give life and death. We're continuing James's train of thought today. So turn in your Bibles, James chapter 3, verse 13. We're just going to look at five verses this morning, 13 through 18. We're going to close out chapter three. And this morning is all about wisdom. So let's read our passage together. We're going to read it all together and then we'll back up and kind of work through it. Verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? Just a, a question to provoke processing. James wants you to sit there and ask yourself, am I wise? Am I understanding? And if so, how do I know? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. You know, by now, James is all about what we proclaim. Let us also practice so James is saying here, this is not an intellectual ascent. This is not some intellectual collection of data and knowledge. That's not wisdom in James's mind. For James, wisdom is 
good conduct shown in the works of meekness. It's all about our actions. Who's wise among you? Can we actually see that by your life? That's James's question. Verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and vile and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So we know that wisdom is not, in James's mind, wisdom is not the building up of knowledge. Wisdom is our character on display, the, the good conduct that comes through our faith in Jesus, shown through our works. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. It's earthly, unspiritual, demonic, where jealousy and selfish ambition exists. There will be disorder and every vile practice. So James introduces to us two systems, two infrastructures, two operating systems that are actually coexisting in this world. He says, hey, there is an earthly system of wisdom. You may not know you're operating by it. You may not even know it existed, but there is an earthly system of wisdom and there is a heavenly system of wisdom. And it's possible to operate according to the heavenly system. It's possible to operate according to the earthly system. He's writing to Christians. He's, he's inviting us in to live in accordance with God's ways and conform our lives to them. It's what a wise person does. But because James knows that we are not mirror images of Jesus Christ, that it's possible for those who claim Christ to slip into earthly wisdom systems. And here's the deal. It's easy to do it because it looks good and it makes sense. And the values of the world around us would certainly applaud and encourage operating according to this system. He says, those who operate according to the earthly system have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. They boast and they are false to the truth. And so self-evaluation time. You may be asking, well, how do I know if I'm operating in the earthly system of wisdom as opposed to the heavenly system? And James would say, well, do you have bitter jealousy? And do you have selfish ambition in your hearts? When someone in your life does something well, or when something good happens to them, or when they come into success, what's the posture in your heart? Do you feel like you should have gotten that? Do you feel like they, they didn't deserve it, and you become bitter about why God would bless them that way and not you that way? Do you immediately turn it into a competition where somehow you have to prove yourself that you can't celebrate when good things are happening in other people's lives, that you have some sort of bitter jealousy, a, a zealousness in the ways that you operate. When God is good to others, you don't celebrate 
you become bitter. And not only that, you have selfish ambition. Ambition's not a bad thing. Godly ambition can be a great thing. But selfish ambition is all about you. It's about your goals, your life. You've designed the blueprint and and you're inviting God into your plans so that your plans can succeed. That's selfish ambition. And James is saying those who operate according to the worldly system of wisdom tend to have bitter jealousy towards others and selfish ambition for themselves. They are false to the truth and they oftentimes boast. They boast about what they've done and what they're able to do. And you ever, you ever overhear someone just talking about accomplishments in their life and they don't talk about it in the way of like, man, God is so good. Listen to what God has done through me. Listen to what God is doing through our efforts. It's always them, my strength, my efforts, my ideas, my plans. There's boasting, there's bitter jealousy, there's selfish ambition, and they're false to the truth. James says that's earthly wisdom. He actually puts four characteristics on earthly wisdom. He says this isn't the wisdom that comes down from above. It's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. The four characteristics are it doesn't come from above. So in other words, this kind of operating is not from God. It doesn't find its source in God. Its origins are not in Jesus. This is not a heavenly way of thinking and operating. It's not from above. It's earthly, meaning it's physical, it's temporary, it's, it's morally polluted. Um, in John chapter 3, Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, ex- explaining salvation and kingdom and spirit Nicodemus is lost in the wind. And Jesus says, if you don't even understand earthly things, how am I supposed to try to explain heavenly things? And so Jesus seems to to help us understand that there's these these planes of, of wisdom, like there's earthly things, but there's higher wisdom that comes through the spirit, that comes through knowing God. And so James says, earthly wisdom is not from above, it's earthly, meaning temporary, corrupted, below. It's unspiritual. This is a favorite word of some of the early church fathers. It's unspiritual. In other words, nothing about it produces the fruitful life that comes through knowing Jesus. It's unspiritual and probably the most emphatic word in his description, it's demonic. We don't often use that word unless we're talking about demons or, you know, some Hollywood movie, right? But like James is saying, no, 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 no. Operating according to this earthly system of wisdom is demonic. It's devilish. In other words, it is influenced by evil. Its agenda is evil. It is not in line with the ways of Jesus. Where this kind of wisdom is applied, where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. James's heartbeat is for the unity of the church. And he is writing and he is saying, listen, it is possible that those who are in teaching positions, those who are in leadership positions, those who have positions of influence, it's possible for them to operate according to the earthly system of wisdom. And if that's true, then what will be true of God's people is they will be disordered, and practicing evil. Now you may be thinking, whew, thank God this is 2,000 years ago. 
and the modern day church doesn't suffer from unhealthy leadership. But it does. In many places around the world and our country, it does. There are people in positions of leadership and power who manipulate power to domineer over others, who manipulate their position to have their way. They can't be held accountable because they're so insulated by the infrastructure of their organization. They lead through aggressive domineering rather than gentle peacemaking. They lead in a way that elevates their own name and their own platform and their own kingdom as opposed to that of Jesus. They lead in a way that puts the attention on their efforts as opposed to that of the Spirit. They operate pragmatically instead of pneumatically in the ways of the Spirit. Unfortunately, there are many churches that are marked by this way of leading. James is not just limiting this to church leadership, by the way. If, if you are a person in positions of influence, it is possible to operate according to this system of wisdom and affect the people under that influence. So James would say, yeah, it's possible for church leaders to do this. Apparently in the early church, there were some hot-headed, hot-tempered, hard-to-teach leaders who were manipulating their power. And James is writing to them, saying this is not the way of Christ. But there's also families that are being led like this. There are husbands who operate according to the earthly system of wisdom, who have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, who are false to the truth and boast. There are organizations, teams being led by Christians, and those Christians operate according to earthly wisdom, selfish ambition, bitter jealousy, boasting and false to the truth. This is not only applied to the church as in our organization. James is writing to the church as in our people. James is saying it is possible for Christians to be operating in this way, and may it never be so, because this is unspiritual and demonic and earthly, and it will lead to disorder and every vile practice. There can be no unity in the body of Christ, whether that's in the church, a family, an organization, a business, a team, it doesn't matter. Unity cannot exist if leadership operates according to earthly wisdom. So as we go through this passage, let, let's observe, because we want to observe and apply, let's observe three things that, that James would say, this is how wisdom is seen. Like if this is earthly wisdom, we want the heavenly wisdom. Well, how, how, how do we see that heavenly wisdom in our lives? So based on verses 13 through 16, I think we could conclude heavenly wisdom is seen in our value of other people. In your life, as you operate, who do you think about most throughout the day? Paul writes in Philippians chapter two, verse three, hey, don't just look out for your own needs, but consider the needs of others. In fact, elevate their needs above your own because when the body of Jesus begins to lay our life down and serve each other, then everyone's needs are met and elevated. That's how the body's supposed to operate. So wisdom, heavenly wisdom, is seen in our value for others. If we are operating by bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, boastfulness, false to the truth, 
We are not thinking about others. Everything in this world revolves around us, our comforts, our insecurities, our desires, our goals, our agenda, our ambitions. And James is saying that is not heavenly wisdom. Heavenly wisdom is seen in the way you value other people and elevate them above yourself and serve them. If anyone had right to claim to come and say, serve me, it would have been Jesus. And what we see Jesus do is empty himself, take on the form of a servant and become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Jesus says, that's it. Luke 9, 23, if anyone wants to follow me, let him first deny himself, take up his cross and then follow me. First step to obedient faith in Jesus is getting over yourself and beginning to see others as valuable. Beginning to see others through the eyes, ears, and heart of Jesus. So heavenly wisdom is seen in our value for others. Now let's look at verse 17. James starts talking about heavenly wisdom. But the wisdom from above, now he put four characteristics on earthly wisdom. He puts seven on heavenly wisdom. So buckle up, bear with me, here we go. The wisdom from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So let's go through them. It's first pure. James means it is free from defects and moral pollution. It is pure. It's not like an earthly system. It's a heavenly system. It's not been corrupted or corroded. It's pure. Next, it's peaceable. This is more than just a person who's at peace, like, oh, I'm at peace, I'm, I'm settled. It's way more than that. It's the entirety of the Hebrew idea of shalom. I'm at peace with my creator. I'm at peace with myself. I'm at peace with others. I'm at peace with creation. The four categories of relationships that we see in the garden, all of those are experiencing peace through applying heavenly wisdom. Wouldn't it be so great to have your life defined by peace? James says, that's heavenly wisdom. It leads to peace. Next, it's gentle, meaning it's merciful and, and mild. Gentleness tempers those earthly attributes of jealousy and selfish ambition. Gentleness is the antidote to those things. Do you find yourself gentle or do you find yourself losing patience often? you find yourself gentle or do you find yourself tempered with anger Letting that fuse be so short. Good test of this might be, what's your posture like driving home between the hours of five and six? I don't know. Rush hour can bring out a lot of things in people. Are you gentle? Are you open to reason? James says, heavenly wisdom leads to someone being open to reason. In other words, they're teachable. They're humble enough to admit when they're wrong. They're humble enough to change their opinion about something. They're not going to be obtuse and stuck in their ways and like, I can never admit that I'm wrong because that would paint me as a bad leader. No, 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 no. They allow truth to persuade them to change their opinion when needed. They know when to hold firm. They know when to change. They're open to reason. Remember, someone in the earthly system is false to the truth. Someone in the heavenly system is open to reason. They're full of mercy and good fruits. James takes two ideas to make one thought, mercy and good fruits. These are both outward focused, specifically to people in need, fulfilling the idea of Jesus' teaching, love your neighbor as yourself. There's mercy and good fruits 
outward-focused love. They're impartial. This is a reference back to James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, when he teaches on the sin of partiality. Showing preference to some but not others based on external factors will lead to division in the body of Christ. So heavenly wisdom says, I'm not partial to any of those things. And finally, they're sincere, meaning they are without hypocrisy. What we proclaim is also what we practice. We don't say it and not live it. James goes through the characteristics of heavenly wisdom, leading us to our second conclusion about what wisdom is or how wisdom is seen. Wisdom is seen in our actions. Wisdom is seen in our actions. This goes back to the first verse in this passage, verse 13. Good, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. What's that conduct? James says, man, there's seven attributes of heavenly wisdom, and these are them, and these how they, th- this is how they would flesh out in your life. Growing up, I always came to understand wisdom as some, some type of knowledge, like I have life experience or I've, I've read things, I've learned things. James would say, that's fine, but heavenly wisdom is allowing God's ways to impact your life so that you conform to them. It is on display. You can see it. Why? Because of your good character, your good conduct. You're pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason. Merciful, you have good fruits, you're impartial, you're sincere. That's a wise person because that is someone who understands God's ways and has conformed their life to those. Finally, verse 18, kind of an interesting verse, weird verse, the way it's written. James says, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What he's saying here is, the fruit of someone's life who operates according to heavenly wisdom will be righteousness. Not just righteousness in the sense of our relationship with God, although that's true, but righteousness in the Hebrew understanding, in the Jewish understanding, that, that righteousness and justice are kind of interchangeable, and there will be a fruit of righteousness and justice in our lives as we operate according to God's wisdom. It's sown in peace by those who make peace. In other words, those who operate according to God's wisdom make peace through peaceful ways. They're not aggressive. They're not domineering. They don't beat people up. They don't bully. They don't belittle. They don't speak over. They don't use volume as a weapon. They are gentle and understanding and merciful and open to reason. And they make peace through peaceful methods. That's heavenly wisdom applied. So third observation about heavenly wisdom is that heavenly wisdom is seen in the peacefulness of our lives. So self-examination time. Is your life marked by peace? Are your relationships marked by peace? If you were to do a survey of the people closest to you in your life, and you would ask them, hey, would you say that I'm a, a, a peaceful person? Would you say that I make peace with those around me through peaceful ways? What would they say? Or do people kind of walk on eggshells around you, never knowing what's gonna trigger you, never knowing what's gonna set you off because you're known for your anger and your short fuse and your temper 
James says that's not heavenly wisdom applied. Heavenly wisdom bears a fruit of righteousness and those people make peace through peaceful methods. Wisdom is seen in the peacefulness of our lives. Doesn't mean you're gonna be absent of conflict, but how you deal with that conflict matters. So the question becomes, how? How do I, how do I get this wisdom, this godly wisdom? Again, James knows with all grace and mercy that we are not the perfect mirror image of Jesus. So he's not writing in a way that's like, oh, you're blowing it, you're failing. He's writing in a way that's saying, here's the reality, there's two systems, this is the one that leads to life. The question becomes how? How do we live in the heavenly wisdom and not operate according to the earthly wisdom? Because if we don't have a strategy, it's just hit or miss, it's just experimentation. It's like, <laughs> we're kind of going to the box and we're like, God, would you? I, I don't know what to do here. So I have three thoughts of how to gain heavenly wisdom in your life. First thought is this, ask God for wisdom. And you're like, Matt, that's kind of basic. I know, it's called a prayer. You just ask him for what you need, but it's not even original to me. James actually opens this entire letter with the idea of wisdom on his mind. Look at James chapter one, verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Let him ask God for wisdom who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Wisdom is not unique to the tail end of chapter three. For James, heavenly wisdom or godly wisdom is a life-giving infrastructure of how Christians should be operating. It starts all the way in chapter one. And James is like, look, if any of you lack wisdom, if any of you need wisdom, let them come to God, let them ask God in faith and God will give it to them. In some ways, that same invitation that was given to Solomon is given to all of us in here. According to the scriptures, if you want wisdom, you can ask for it and God will give it. So how do we grow in heavenly wisdom? I'd say ask for it. Posture yourself before the heavenly father and say, I don't have it. I want it, I want my life to be marked by godly wisdom, leading to peace and harmony in my relationships, leading to a fruitfulness of righteousness in my life. I'm tired of operating according to what the world says is wise, I want God's wisdom. So ask for it. Second way of how we get this heavenly wisdom, I would say surround yourself with wise people. Again, this is not like, you know, brilliant deductions here, but they're hard to apply when you really think about it. Surround yourselves with wise people. Again, not people that you think are wise, according to the world standard, but people that the Bible would say or that God's word would say, that's wisdom. How do we know they're wise? Because we see wisdom on display through their good conduct. We see wisdom on display through their lifestyles. It's on display through the meekness of wisdom. How do we know they're wise? They're pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, merciful. They have good fruit. They're impartial. They're sincere. That's a wise person. A wise person is someone who understands God's ways and conforms their life to those ways. That's a wise person. So surround yourself with wise people. You wanna know one of the greatest benefits of doing this? Sometimes as you follow Jesus, you kind of reach this, this cap in your faith. You're like, yeah, I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, like I'm, I'm all right. And you kind of think you've reached 
some echelon of like, this is good, man, I'm, I'm doing well. When you surround yourself with wise people who are sold out to Jesus, who desperately cling to him, operate by his grace, invite wisdom in their lives, you start spending time with those people, all of a sudden it exposes <laughs> like how short your faith is measuring up. And this is not competition and it's not comparison and it's not meant to make you feel like a failure. It's meant to challenge you. Like you wanna become a better athlete, you compete against people who are better than you. You wanna become a better artist, you, you, you get inspired by the masters. You, you, you surround yourself with wise people and you look at their life and you're like, that's not my life. And you begin to try to embrace, how are they doing that? Man, they're just, they're radical about Jesus. They, ha they have devoted times to silence and solitude. They, they, they listen to the spirit. They try to align their life with the spirit. Every opportunity they have, they're trying to talk about Jesus to people. They're constantly pestering people like at restaurants. The waitress comes up like, hey, can I take your order? They're like, hey, can I pray for you? It's like, oh, it's so annoying. But how do you do it? Because that's awesome. They just live in such a way that you're like, I don't, I don't get that kind of faith. Good, let it be a mystery and let their faith pull you up and inspire you. In fact, ask them to disciple you. Our faith was never meant to be solo. And unfortunately, American culture has kind of like influenced how we approach faith. It's an individual decision, but a communal effort. If you don't have people discipling you, you need it, we all do. If you're wondering who, who could disciple me? Get some grandparents in the mix. You wanna talk about wisdom? Get some intergenerational influence in your life. I guarantee you, you will discover wisdom. Surround yourself with wise people. Third way, how, how can we get this heavenly wisdom is get to know the God of the word. And I phrase it that way because sometimes I, I think I, I've met people who are like, man, I, I wanna grow in my faith, so I'm, I'm gonna... I'm gonna read the Bible, read the Bible, memorize the Bible, memorize the Bible. And that's good, please hear me, that's good. But if we're not careful, our entire approach to the scriptures can be intellectual at best. And we forget that there's actually an author behind the words. I met a guy one time, he came up to me, he said, hey Matt, I'm so-and-so, I've read the Bible for 256 days in a row. I was like, that's a weird way to introduce yourself. Okay, I wanted to say, great, how many days have you applied it? But I didn't. I just said, oh, cool, nice to meet you. I think, I, I think I've like skipped a few days compared to you, bro, but that's good for you. If we're not careful, we can begin to measure success based on how many days we're reading it rather than growing in our intimacy of the author of the word. So yes, let's spend time in our word but for the purpose of getting to know God better. Get to know the God of the word as you spend time in the word of God. That's how we grow in wisdom. Ultimately finding wisdom at its true source, which is Jesus. According to John 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word became flesh. Jesus is the word lived out. So as we get to know the word, we get to know the word. Let us get to know wisdom from the source. So let me conclude with the same question James opens with. Who is wise and understanding among you? That's how he opens this passage. That's how I wanna end this morning. Evaluate your life. I'll evaluate mine. Wrestle with this question. Am I wise? 
according to God's word, am I wise? And if the answer is no, how can you allow the grace of Jesus to empower you through the power of the Spirit to begin to take steps towards godly wisdom? Who is wise and understanding among you? Wrestle with it as you go home today. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for being wisdom incarnate and showing us what a life of wisdom looks like when it's lived out and applied to every degree and every category. Jesus, we love you. We desperately, desperately ask that you would give us wisdom. It's what we want. And we want it not just so we can have it, but so that we can experience life to the fullest, your presence to the most intimate, understand your ways and conform our life to it. It's a wise person. And so that's our prayer. Would you help us do this through your grace? Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen.